recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 64 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend, and you can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, of course. Also, our YouTube and SoundCloud channels, if you prefer. And um, also sign up for our newsletter if you get a sec. You can go to prlawpodcast.club, and we will send you updates on when new shows drop and all kinds of other show news, so don't miss that. Uh, Ewan, we've got a busy show planned today. We've got a guest coming on shortly, uh, but how are things going with you? It seems like it's been uh, a busy week. There's lots of news happening. Yeah. You know what else it's been a busy week for, Cam, is sports. Yeah, that's right, actually. This has been like the craziest. I, I mean, as you know, I'm not a, a huge sports guy. I don't really watch all that much sports. But in the last 24 hours, we've had the, the Copa America final, last, uh, which was you know between Argentina yep. and Brazil. The, the men's Wimbledon final this morning. The, the Euro final between Italy and England. And then uh, you've got game three of the NBA finals. Uh, between the Suns and the Bucks, going and because on as, I, as we speak here, so. because it's morning, and I just woke up here, and actually the Euro final started at three a.m. Hong Kong time. Who won? I, I don't even know yet. Italy won. Okay, they went to penalty penalty shootout. And they won. Okay, I think they were the better team. I'm sure we'll get some hate mail from uh, from from English supporters for that, but I think Italy Italy deserved the win. I think. Yeah, England went on a bit of a run there too. I mean, they did they did well. I, I know that when they beat Denmark, that was kind of an, an iffy one because um, Denmark's kind of been the the Cinderella story of the of the tournament. But yeah, there has been lots of sports going on, and I want to take this little moment to brag a bit because I do believe I said five games that. Uh, Tampa Bay would beat Montreal to win the Stanley Cup as well, and I was banging on. You on did. That one. I was I was cursing you as I watched, <laughs> uh, you know, my beloved Montreal Canadiens lose, Cam. But yeah, uh, I think this, there was well. one one team superior than the other in that one. Um, anyway, you went. Let's get started because we've got lots to cover today. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. You know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Ewan, about uh, Future.com, this new sort of publication that was put together by Andreessen Horowitz, the, the, the venture capital uh, fund in, in the Valley. And just how, you know, they, they set this up sort of in response to what they felt was overly negative coverage of technology sort of in the mainstream media. So they just went ahead and, and built their own media to deal with that. So we want to talk a bit more about that today. And we've got the uh, Vice President of Strategy and Marketing at Carbon Collective 
uh, Breen Murphy. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, Cam. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. Awesome, thanks. And uh, Breen and I actually got to know each other because we're both part of the Forbes Communication Council, mm-hmm. um, which is also something where where it's a, a great resource sort of for, for communications people. Um, but Breen, before we dive into the issue, I mean, what's what's Carbon Collective? Tell us sort of what you what you do there and what that's about. Yeah. That, that... You know, so Carbon Collective, I just started over here. Um, you know, we're a startup fintech ESG company, um, and we are an online uh, climate-friendly investment platform. And really one of the issues that we're seeing is to solve climate change, we're going to radically need to increase the amount of money going into climate solutions. And so we're just trying to play a, a part in that. And, uh, you know, so it's an exciting new thing that we're getting to do. And, uh you know, I've been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, that's a really sort of emerging new area. So it sounds like um, a good time to sort of get involved in that. Um, I mean, you, you, you've worked in communications and marketing in, in, in L.A. or in the L.A. area, it looks like, for, mm-hmm. for, for some time now, sort of in healthcare and, and obviously now in, in sort of investing. It looks like even sports a bit earlier on. I mean, what, mm-hmm. what changes have you seen sort of in communications throughout throughout your time in, in the business? Yeah. Um, so the... So my family actually had an ad agency for 25 years. And so I had a pretty good look into really the evolution of what's going on in marketing and PR. And because my 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 family business was, I mean, think Don Draper, you know, the, mm-hmm. the end of the Mad Men era. That's kind of like where my dad was coming out of, like the, the classic do your market research, deep strategy, like all that sort of, you know, positioning work and testing. And as I graduated college and came into the business, there was a huge fragmentation and disruption of Google and Facebook, which I mean, publicly are technology companies, but I mean, really they're, they're advertising companies, mm-hmm. right? Cause that's where all of their revenue is coming from. And so it, it caused this dramatic shift in how agencies were functioning. And so what I saw for years and years was this real fragmentation and I'm actually starting to see, and this, you know, this Anderson Horowitz um, move is actually part of this like reintegration around technology. And I think it's a, you know, they're, they're definitely not the only one doing this. I mean, I think you saw HubSpot, um, they bought the hustle, which was like a similar Mm -hmm. sort of play, but you know, rethinking what it is that you need to do online to really deliver to, you know, your clients, your consumers, raising brand awareness for people who haven't even heard of you before. Um, so I, I think that there's like a lot of interesting aspects to, to what they're doing. I mean, it's been out there for a while now that companies really do have the power to do their own content, right? I mean, they've, they've got websites, they've got social channels where they can publish to lots of people. So that ability has been there but 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 i don't think we've seen a company really launch what it considers a new publication the way andreessen horowitz did do you see what they're doing is really sort of groundbreaking or just kind of an extension of of what companies have kind of been doing for the last several years when it comes around to content creation i mean i would say it's one of those like important leveling ups that is an extension of everything that's been going on um because if you look at what's been happening and and can you you were talking about PR I'm a little bit more on the marketing side mm-hmm. but this is this becomes more of an integration of PR and marketing right you know you're trying to control your narrative so much that you're hiring editors you're making sure you're you know you have the, like the great email newsletters that are really top of mind um, for people that care about this topic that is technology right um you know but in terms of like 
being brand new, I think it's just like the dedit like the dedication of resources to this, knowing that um, I mean, from a marketer standpoint, I'm looking at the SEO implications of this, and like they have a very big opportunity to own a piece of online real estate in perpetuity, right? So you know, not just you know getting your name in a or a byline like you're trying to help with with your um, in your line of work, um, but also having like the backlinks. And being able to track new people and then becoming, you know, the thought leaders. I mean, not that Anderson Horowitz um, needs that much help in being the thought leaders, Mm -hmm. but um, it really starts to cement them in a way where all of these articles and podcasts can live on in perpetuity. Because the one thing I will say is, you know, even in the, the article that you sent over to me was talking about how they were attempting to do this as a way to control the message around traditional like journalists. They're not going to, I don't think they're going to change traditional media, right? Because there's a real role for that, but they will be able to build out their base and their footprint around the types of people that they want to continually attract, um, whether it's from an investment perspective if, or if they're looking for more companies to come to them to help raise capital. Um, I just think it puts them in a, a really strong seat um, for them to continue to you know, deliver on their mission. Yeah, you make a good point about marketing and PR, too, because you're right. This is much more marketing, I think, um, you know, that they've done on the PR side. I mean, we always like to use these networks or website once they have a big audience in case of a crisis or some other some other issue that we have to deal with. And we can go directly, you know, to the audience. But I I think what I mean, one thing that they're going to have to deal with Andreessen Horowitz and I think companies in general just is the sense that the content is maybe not uh, objective, um, and the, mm. the, the, it might be, you know, just whitewashed a little bit in terms of whatever topic that they're dealing with. Is this something that you, you have had to deal with sort of in your own career or is there a way around this, do you think? Uh, I mean, I, I did think the thing that was most interesting um, from what I've been watching from them is that they're bringing on outside uh, expertise. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe that they're ever going to be able to fully get over this uh, perspective. And I don't even think they need to, right? Um, I think this is more about having um, a real online presence in, in a much broader way than people have historically understood it. And, and they can have a, a, like a, a massive footprint, a massive email marketing following, and they'll be able to draw talent. Like if they came up to me and like, hey, do you want to write an article You know, for future? I would say like, hell yes, I want to write for you guys. And so like, that level of owning a part of the ecosystem, I think is so important for what they're doing that whether or not it's bias is sort of a secondary piece of concern. It, that's that's what I say, because I, I don't think it's realistic that they can overcome the bias issue. And this the thing that I'd add to that is I don't think they can actually do this in such a way where they can displace traditional media because traditional media, you know, is supposed to be as much as possible objective, con- you know, covering daily news, you know, covering big events, like showing like investigative journalism. Like it has a really important role that like in our society. And this is all it is, is trying to make sure that, you know, on the Internet, Anderson, Hor- Anderson Horowitz is going to own this area, you know, and, and in five or 10 years, you're going to be able to see, you know, more people finding them. 
Yeah, that's a that's a good sort of point on on the bias because I say that even in my own company now I'm at Tencent, which is even though this information is coming from a company with an interest here, a lot of this is still new information. It's factual still, and there are there is interest here. I mean, reporters may not pick this up and, and run it verbatim, but it might tip them off to something that you know results in positive coverage for us at some point down down the line. So, yeah, there's there's definitely still value with that uh, content. Yeah, and I'm sure you you see this all the time is when you're working on PR stories, how much easier is it to earn a story in traditional media if you've already had something written about it? For sure. And reporters also, when they're working on something, they, they look for more information on that subject, right? And if you've got something on your website where there's a few quotes and some pictures or maybe a video of whatever that they're working on, it's more likely they'll use that in their article. And then that also reflects well, right, on the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it's going to have influence. I just think it's not going to have um, this total online overhaul, um, though I think that there are like greater implications of how they could evolve um, future over time as well. Well, and also, I mean, isn't this also just an issue of, I mean, the media has become, as Cam, we've been a frequent discussion point on our show, just the general polarization around news and media in general. So, I mean, isn't, it, isn't there almost some value here if you're going to create something of an echo chamber to just lean into it and own it and be, a, you know, just be 100% on board with that idea of, no, we're going to continue to sort of perpetuate this particular view on technology. And we're perfectly okay with that. Um, as opposed to trying to challenge it, because at least it's it's a message that you want and a message that you're ultimately controlling. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I do like the dance that they're trying to do, um, which is like adding outside uh, contributors. Um, but I don't I mean, I think that that again, that's how they can own this part of the like the online ecosystem. I've got one more for, for Breen here. I mean, do you think this is going to be successful? Because, I mean, we, we've seen companies do this in, in different ways. Future.com, to me, doesn't look that great, but I'm not sure if that even really matters. Um, you know, they've got a lot of interesting content on there, and I have gone through some of it. And, you know, your point about if they asked you to write, you'd be happy to do so. Me, me, me too, actually, you know. So, so I definitely believe in it from that sense. But do you think this is something that, that they will continue to invest in long term? Or do you think there's a, a possibility that this doesn't really work out for them? Well, there's always going to be a possibility that something doesn't work out because we're speculating from the outside. And I think it depends a lot on what the internal... Um, metrics are that they're trying to achieve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, if they're looking at it from an improving, because it's a subdomain, like even though it's future.com, mm-hmm. it's still redirecting to the A16Z uh, website. So if they're looking at it from a, a level of domain authority, if they're looking at it, you know, from a perspective like increasing uh, readership, if they're looking at, you know, increasing the email newsletter, then I think, yeah, they'll continue to do this for a long time because it's going to be, fun and valuable and it will make them like an essential part of the vc com- i mean not that they're already not an essential part of the vc you know uh like world but it it, it just makes it more likely that they'll uh have a longer footprint that people will remember reading articles you know years later if they're googling something and find it now i think if their goals are around let's displace tr- traditional media um, and they have these incredibly lofty ambitions, I don't think that will work, mm-hmm. you know? So I don't know what they're doing internally, but I know it's 
it can work in certain parameters. And if I were them, I would make sh- I would probably continue to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything else you want to add on this one, Breen, before we wrap up? I mean, I think, you know, they shouldn't stop here if they're going to do this. Like, And look at the, the, the larger positive benefits that this could bring to, success, to society, right? Because there's going to be so many people who want to better understand how they do what they do. And even when it comes to just starting a business, right? Just really starting a great business. And right now they're talking to, you know, CEO, founder, I mean, my level, you know, VP of strategy and marketing, like they're talking like on that level, people who are on the executive level. I think if they want to expand the readership, if they want to expand the reach, like, like looking out at more, um, more content, even getting into like, you know, college students who are thinking about like, how can they start their first business? Like, you know, there, there's a lot of implications for what they could do to improve how people think and create businesses. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us, Brina. It was great having you on the show to talk about this because it's a very pertinent issue that I think uh, companies are going to be dealing with more and more sort of as time goes along here. Yeah, Cam, thank you so much for having me. Ewan, it was a pleasure to talk with you all. And uh, if you ever need me back, just uh, you know where to find me. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Yeah, that's Thanks, uh, Breen. Breen Murphy from the Carbon Collective and the Forbes Communications Council. Thank you, Breen. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. All right, Ewan, what do you have on deck? Well, Cam, what do you think about the four-day work week? Oh, I love that idea. I love it. I thought you might. I thought you might. Well, I, I, I'm not sure if you saw saw this. It was it was a pretty big story actually in, uh, over the week. the The four day work week trial in Iceland. So this mm-hmm. is sort of the results of a um, a trial that was was launched by the the federal government in Iceland in 2015. So it's been running for 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 quite a while, and it involved. 2,500 workers in sort of a, a range of different different workplaces, Cam. And, um, you know, this, this is sort of how they, they structured things. They were given the ability to reduce their week by the equivalent of one workday, basically. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to, to do it all in one day. If you wanted to take a three-day weekend, cool, you're, you could do that. Or if you wanted to sort of, you know, limit an hour a day, um, Monday through Friday, you could do that as well. You could spread it however you wanted to. Um, you know, the only, the only thing was that it was a day that was knocked off somewhere in, in equivalent hours. And critically, of course, salaries remained the same through this process. So nobody was taking a pay cut. Unless you're and, working on an hourly wage, I guess. Well, yeah, I guess I guess if you're working on an hourly wage, then, yeah, it probably it it probably didn't work. I assume these were all salaried Mm -hmm. employees. Mm -hmm. Um, And do you want to take a guess as to what some of the results were, Cam? 
Well, I'm going to guess that people liked it. Uh, I don't know about the company's side, but I haven't seen the results of this. I, I was aware of the, the, the study and I saw some headlines on it, but I don't know the results. So go for it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, sure, you're right. And it, it it almost seems sort of self-explanatory that if you cut people's hours, they're ultimately going to be happier human beings. And lo and behold, that proved to be the case. Um, you know, workers were happier. They ha had lowered measured stress levels. But here's what was really, really fascinating about the results of the study. Productivity levels remained about the same and in some cases actually improved. And, you know, it was interesting in, in sort of going through the results. A lot of workers said that they were able to increase their productivity simply by shortening meetings or cutting them out entirely or, you know, removing those sort of 15, 20 minute coffee breaks um, that you might take throughout the day, eliminating all that stuff. And, and lo and behold, your productivity increases despite the fact that you're, you know, you're removing the equivalent of, of a work day per week. You know, there's so much in this to talk about, Ewan. I, I have long said that people will work to the hours they're expected to work. Um, you know, Asia, I think, is very different in this respect because in a lot of countries over here, people are expected to be in the office until 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, regardless of whether they have work to do. It's just sort of part of the culture in some places over here. Um, and when, when that happens that way, people are working until 9 or 10. They, they have things to do. But I've always believed that if you let them go at 5 o'clock, they, they'll have that finished by 5 o'clock. Um, you know, there's a, there's a way to, to get this stuff done if you're incentivized to get it done and be more productive. And, and maybe that's a little bit of what's shown up in Iceland is just this ability to get things done when you know that you've got a bit of a reward that you can go home earlier or have just four days of a work week. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and look, I, I think, you know, it's not uncommon for employees to often need a little bit of a, you know, kick in the pants to get that project or whatever the item is that needs to get done over the finish line. Right. And that increased bit of of pressure in terms of, hey, I've got to get out of the office because I want to get out of the office mm -hmm. or, you know, it's Thursday afternoon and I know I'm not coming into work on Friday, so I need to get this stuff done. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it compels you to sort of structure your day accordingly and ensure that you are working in a more efficient manner. Um, you know, as a result of the trial, 86% of workers in Iceland have moved to this new shorter work week model. And again, what's fascinating about this is it, it's not like they can do this without the employers buying in, right? I mean, employers have to be on board with this. And, you know, one of the things that I, I, I thought was uh, really compelling evidence from an employer's perspective was that there was all kinds of evidence across these, these different workplaces of these 2,500 workers that showed that sick days were dramatically reduced. And that doesn't surprise me in the least, you know, at least anecdotally, I know uh, workers who typically abuse sick days rather predictably do so on a Friday or a Monday, right, to sort of cheat a longer weekend. Well, if you know you're going to get a long weekend every week and you have more time to sort of rest and relax, then, yeah, I mean, predictably, employees likely are going to take fewer sick days, which, again, increases productivity and and is good for for employers as well. Right. Yeah. And I so so I understand everything that's come out of this study. Um, and I do think most people would prefer 
four days at work. I would prefer just four days at work. Um, I would love more time off. Now, that said, I do anticipate some pushback along the lines of, you know, what has Iceland created for the world with their reduced work week? I, I know it just started, right. <laughs> um, but I can see Americans saying like, look, you know, if you if you want to pull ahead and if you want to be number one, you, you've got to do more than that. You've got to be more productive than that. And I'm not saying I agree with this, but I do suspect this argument is coming. And it reminds me of a quote from Scott Galloway, again, who we've talked about on this show, and I don't have it in front of me. I was looking for it. But it was along the lines of, if you're in your 20s, you should not even be thinking about a work-life balance. You should be working nonstop to create a situation where you, you can find financial security down the line. The idea of finding your passion or work-life balance is just, it should not even be something that you even think about if you want to get ahead. Now, that's his point of view, and that flies in the face of what's happening in Iceland, you and I mean, for you, do you think this is kind of a one size fits all? Or do you suspect there might be some some challenges to some of these findings? Yeah, I think I look, I think inevitably, there are going to be some challenges. I mean, you know, some of the challenges that 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 immediately come to mind is managers in particular, or workers with heavy workloads, right? I mean, they're presumably going to have and face additional stress in having even fewer hours to sort of complete their work in a given week. I mean, that's one issue. The other issue is, you know, trying to communicate effectively with employees due to the reduced hours, right? If everybody's sort of working on a sort of a makeshift schedule in terms of maybe you have one employee who leaves work an extra hour or an hour early every day, and then you've got another employee who takes Mondays off and another employee who takes his Friday off, you know, how do you sort of structure an effective communication model to make sure things get done when they need to get done if everybody's sort of on a different schedule, right? I mean, I think that's sort of why, you know, that the, the sort of Monday through Friday, nine to five has become so ubiquitous traditionally. Uh, and I know we're, for obvious reasons, moving away from that model, but that's traditionally why why that's what it's been is everybody's in the same place at the same time when work needs to get done. So, yeah, there's going to be challenges. I don't foresee um, this really changing anything in a North American context. I would be really shocked if we see large companies um, adopting adopting this plan. But I mean, I know that Spain, for example, is is looking to move to that model and a lot of people a lot of countries, a lot of companies are looking at this Icelandic study to see if, if you know, is is there some merit to this? Could we increase productivity? I think that's really what it comes down to, mm -hmm. right, Cam? If you can, if you can provide some demonstrable evidence that in eliminating an additional day of work or the equivalent of you know an hours of a, an additional day of work per week. And it increases the productivity. Well, that increases a company's bottom line. And we know that fundamentally, that is always priority number one, right? Yeah. And this does require some sort of enlightenment at these companies to accept it too, right? I mean, there are some traditions that really that really die hard on in some of these cases. You know, I do want to mention one thing here too, just because it's not well known, I think, outside of, of Hong Kong, which is we had a six-day work week here. Uh, like a full Saturday is a full work day up until around 2000. I mean, it's quite recent. And even now, Saturday is a half day, technically. So in Hong Kong, we have a five and a half day work week now, and people are expected to go to the office for a few hours on Saturday morning. Now, companies 
the sort of forward-thinking companies have decided not to enforce this in many cases in sort of knowledge economy jobs. That's been the case. Um, but a lot of places still do enforce it. Uh, and people are coming into the office. And there is a rush hour on Saturday morning and around noon on Saturday when people get get off work, which is quite different compared to, to North America, because I think this would not be accepted <laughs> in a lot of places. But I think it, it just goes to show how long it takes for some of these things to change. I mean, we're still figuring out whether we should keep a half day Saturday working, you know, let alone going down to just a four day week. Um, there's always pressure on here. There's always going to be interests in terms of business and governments and whatever. Um, and you're right. I think one of the key the key things to happen is to prove that this is actually it makes you more productive, that it helps the bottom line. I think if there can be a really coherent case made there, that will really push this along much further. Yeah, I, I, totally. I, I mean, I think the other interesting point, Cam, is if we're seeing an increase in remote work versus in office FaceTime, how is that going to affect sort of this set established hours? Because, I mean, let's be honest, we know we know full well that productivity among workers who are simply continuing to sit in front of their computers because, you know, they want it. So they want to be perceived as continuing to work um, by their managers or superiors. There's no productivity there. There's no work being done. It's simply a matter of FaceTime from a, you know, a, a junior employee who's looking to sort of advance. Now, not always, um, but I, I certainly think there is probably some some evidence to support to support that. Um, but if you if you sort of remove that FaceTime element, then, you know, then how do you again, how do you create these benchmarks for productivity in terms of punching in and, and punching out in a given workday, right? Yeah, it's, it'll be much harder to, to measure. You know, on my own little soapbox here, Ewan, I actually would prefer more flexibility to work than like a, a four-day work week, three-day weekend sort of set in stone. I think I've kind of mentioned this before on the show. I do value flexibility a lot. I mean, I'm in a situation now where, you know, I'm, I'm working out of Hong Kong. I, I have fairly flexible work location uh, parameters around my job. And, you know, with the pandemic, I haven't been back to Canada in a year and a half. Obviously, I haven't seen, you know, family, my parents, etc. So I would like to head back. There's still a quarantine requirement, though, coming back into Hong Kong, which means I need to calculate quite a long period of time if this is something I'm going to do. And I am very appreciative because I am able to set aside, maybe I have a week in Canada where I'm visiting people and it's a holiday. And maybe I add on another week or two or three where I am working, but I'm working from there. And this kind of flexibility is what I value more than anything else. I, I don't mind working weekends. I don't mind working late. I don't mind working on holiday as long as I get this kind of flexibility. If I can do it from Canada, for instance, and it's not a matter of you have to be back in this office in Hong Kong by 8 a.m. Monday morning, um, that's really valuable to me. That That's more valuable to me than a four-day work week. Um, and so that's where I stand, but I think I'm probably in the minority on that. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I suspect you are, but I'm actually with you on that point too, right? It's just, it's just the idea of those sort of handcuffs around you of you must physically be in this place between this hour and this hour. Um, and again, I, I, I think, you know, the evidence, if you, it just doesn't bear out from a productivity perspective that there continues to be merit um, from that from from that position, that sort of traditional work environment. But again, as you know, this is all going to come down to 
to the to the millennials and the Gen Zers, right? They again, they 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 are fundamentally going to transform the working environment. And I think, you know, this is going to be part of that conversation, Gam. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens down the road. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait, oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, Ewan, what have you got? Well, I, uh, I finally got around to reading the Britney Spears conservatorship nightmare story oh. cam by Ronan Farrow and uh, Gia Tolentino in the New Yorker. Yeah. Have you seen this yet? I, I've seen it. I have not read it yet, though. Wow. I mean, wow. I mean, it's, just, it's just, just wow. And, and, and I was reminded of, I don't know if you remember this, Cam, but when the Weinstein story broke in the New Yorker that Farrow wrote, you and I happened to be in Bangkok. <laughs> <laughs> and this story, this story came up and you pulled it up immediately. And I remember, I do remember uh, this. hearing, mm-hmm. I remember you sort of like humming and hawing, like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Wow. wow, wow. <laughs> I was like, what are you, what are you reading Cam? And you sort of told me, and then I pulled it up and, you know, despite sort of being in Thailand when we should have been out sort of enjoying the day and wandering about, we were, you know, sort of huddled in front of our laptops sort of like bombing through yeah. this this sort of blockbuster story. Um I mean it's it's obviously it's not quite on that level, but um you know it's like it's just an insane insane story and I I know you had watched the the recent sort of New York Times documentary on Britney Spears's conservatorship. I saw it too and and I found it to be somewhat lacking in terms of of depth. And just mm-hmm. the the actual background and substance of what was going on, it was I found it to be really speculative, um, and it didn't have a lot of teeth. That's not the case with this story. I mean, it it's got all the background and then some that you would want to sort of piece together why this continues to be such a crazy and compelling story. So why, and because I'm not an expert on this story, I've seen it everywhere and I've got so many articles saved into my Insta paper to read later, but I, I haven't actually gone through them yet. What is the argument made for, for maintaining this conservatorship? Great question. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. And mm. I haven't, I'm, I'm at a loss having, 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 read this article, I think Ronan Farrow is at a loss as to why this continues to be continues to be status quo. Because there's got to be a um, reason, right? I mean, the judge isn't sitting there just thinking he doesn't like Britney Spears, so he's going to do this. Like, theoretically, no, no, there's no, some no, sort not, of not at all. claim here that still has validity, right? Yeah. 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 I, 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 I don't know. Anyway, you know, you and I actually set aside something that I thought this is going to be my check this out this week. 100% bar none. This is it. And I cannot find it. Um, So I'm going to have to hold it on for next week because there's other things. Every week I'm always looking at a lot of different things. So um, the other one, Barry Weiss is a former New York Times uh, reporter who left. Um, She's particularly angry about um, sort of woke culture or cancel culture. Um, and she's, her newsletter is quite interesting, actually. I have been following it since she left the Times. And she's published um, an issue of her newsletter called Winston Marshall was bloody terrified to quit Mumford & Sons. He tells me why. And this circulates or, or it is about Winston Marshall who tweeted uh, a book that he had read was interesting. He felt the book was interesting. 
turned out to be a kind of far right book and he got pilloried on social media to the point he had to make an apology uh, and that never sat well with him and he has decided no i'm not going to sit and tolerate this and he's come back and um and quit the band basically uh over this so he can speak his mind so i think people have some pretty clear views on the issue of whether cancel culture is even a thing or not but this is it's i mean it's another example just of somebody who is stepping away from things that they do love so they can speak more openly um it's an interesting interview and along with it is uh, a video interview uh between the two and also uh an audio file or you can sort of read how that interview went so there's a couple of different options in terms of um your multimedia uh interests did did you read his his statement, Cam, when he uh, I did, yes. you know announcing that he was leaving the band? Oh no, I didn't see that one. I, I saw his statement when he apologized for the book. Uh, you should, you, yeah, you should, you should, you should seek it out. Um, I, it it's I I, I and you know in, in my opinion, for whatever that's worth, I thought it was incredibly well written and articulate and remarkably brave. Um, and actually, I I initially heard about this story because I saw Barry Weiss's tweet about it um saying you know now who would basically something to the effect of who would have thunk that the most courageous person speaking up would be you know a banjo player from Mm -hmm. from the band mumford and sons um it's an incredibly articulate statement um you know wherein he he sets out that look i don't have any particular political proclivities from the right or for the left from the left um, you know, my grandparents were survivors of the Holocaust. Um, so to, to have people point fingers and call me a fascist is really just an incredibly, you know, crazy, crazy thing for me. But what was really interesting was that, yeah, he consciously retracts his apology, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had initially come out and said, I'm really sorry about this. And he then goes on to say in this statement that, you know what? I don't apologize and I didn't want to have to apologize in the first instance and only did so out of respect um, for my bandmates because it's not fair that they get tainted with this brush. However, now that I have left the band and can now speak freely as an individual separate and apart from the entity that is Mumford and Sons, I choose to retract this apology um, and will continue to sort of speak out um, politically as, as I see fit. And I thought it was a really, really brave statement, but again, a a remarkably articulate statement as well. So Barry Weiss um, mentioned that, you know, PR people in particular will tell you to apologize to, to, to get over whatever heat is on you in that moment. And, and that's true. I think if you look at it from a PR perspective, it is lower, lower the risk, fix the situation, right? That, that becomes number one. And if that means you have to put together a heartfelt apology, then, then so be it. Because the objective is, yeah, to end it, to end whatever's going on. Now, that might not always be the objective of the person. It might be that they're, they want to stand up for what they believe in. And I, you know, I certainly admire that much more, and I admire him for, for doing this. But it, it certainly isn't something a communications person would normally recommend um, just because it does mean that he's probably going to lose something and it's going to become much more of an issue in the future but as I, I i think you know more people are doing this though that it's slow and i think the trickle is just kind of picking up steam now um, for people just saying like look no i do i did think this book was interesting and that doesn't make me a fascist <laughs> and i think it does need kind of pushback uh, otherwise you sort of cede that ground um to critics and i think that's kind of dangerous too well, yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, if you are a believer in 
freedom of expression and freedom of speech, then, you know, I mean, these, these are rights that we need to protect and we need to support regardless of whether or not you agree or disagree with what an individual might have to say. I mean, these are, these are critically important concepts of a modern and functioning democracy. Um, so anyway, yeah, yep. cool. Good for, good for him for, for standing up anyway. Uh, yeah. Anything else you want to mention, doc? No, I think that's it. Yeah, fast show. moving show. Thanks, thanks again to Breen Murphy for joining us earlier. Yeah, thanks, Breen. Uh, from the fantastic. Carbon Collective. And I think we've got some more guests coming up. So uh, it should be make sure make sure you're uh, subscribing in your podcast app of choice. Or, of course, you can listen to our YouTube or SoundCloud channels. You can subscribe to the show there as well. And you can follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And please sign up for our newsletter. You can find that at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy and our guest, Bree Murphy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.